Welcome back to the True Sports Physical Therapy Podcast. This is your host, Yoni. You are about to hear an awesome conversation with Dr. Robin West. She has done really incredible things with her career, most notably building one of the absolute best centers for integrative sports medicine care. She does an awesome job of combining physical therapy, strength and conditioning, as well as nutrition and other offerings with her sports medicine orthopedic surgical practice. The number one theme you're really going to hear in this conversation is her emphasis on collaboration, on communication, on really approaching the patient with humility. You're going to hear very interesting tidbits and techniques of how to relate to your patient, how to get patient buy-in, how to get an awesome subjective history and story out of the patient so you can provide the best diagnosis and plan of care. Uh, one of the things I really valued from the conversation was hearing when the doctor wants to hear from the physical therapist, how we should communicate uh, with the surgeon, and then also getting into the specifics of adolescent female ACL reconstruction, and then their return to sport and her really unique take on it. You're going to learn about ALLs. You're going to learn about some meniscal repairs, as well as graft choices, some things that I really found eye-opening. So without further ado, enjoy the conversation. As always, reach out to us on Instagram at True Sports PT. We'd love to hear from you, and we'd love to hear who you want to hear from next. Welcome to the podcast, the True Sports Physical Therapy Podcast, uh, Dr. West. So happy to have you here. So excited to really educate the sports PTs around the world about some of, some of what you're up to, uh, some of your knowledge. In researching for this specific podcast, uh, I was really excited to talk to you about the female athlete ACL reconstruction, specifically in that female athlete population. But once I started learning a little bit about you and your career, I think there's so much more here that we can unpack in terms of professional and personal development. Um, and I want to get into that first and learn a little bit about how you got to where you are, professionally speaking, and then we'll dive right into that clinical side, if that works. So with that being said, tell us your path to your current role and how you got where you are. Thanks for having me, Yoni. I'm excited to, to be on your podcast. Um, yeah, so uh, I can start sort of from the beginning, but I grew up in Santa Monica, California. I came out to Johns Hopkins for college, and I always wanted to be a physician. Um, and I think immediately I was drawn to orthopedics just from playing sport. You know, from playing sports. Um, I actually got mononucleosis uh, when I was at Hopkins, and I was on the swim team, so I had to stop that season. And I started working in the athletic training room, so I got to work with the athletic trainers, the physical therapists, and the orthopedic surgeons right at Union Memorial in Baltimore. And so I got to watch ACLs and, and I was instantly drawn to this whole thing. And I think I, I really love the whole aspect of taking care of the whole, entire athlete, you know, not just doing the surgery, but going through the, from injury through recovery was always really great for me. So even at that time, I started thinking, maybe I should be a physical therapist. And I, I started going down that path also, um, because I, I loved, again, treating the whole person. So anyway, I went on to medical school at George Washington and then did my residency there. And then I went to the University of Pittsburgh. Um, and I think you had Jamie Dries on last or a couple of weeks ago. And Dr. Dries and I were fellows together. And it was did there that I met. That. What, a, what a stud that <laughs> what guy a small is. World. What a small uh, world. And I was, I was at the University of Pittsburgh and Freddie Fu was our chairman. And, um, and he asked me to stay on after the fellowship. Um, and I wasn't really looking. I'm again, I'm a Southern California girl. I had a couple of job offers all across the country and I decided to stay on at the University of Pittsburgh. And 
it was from there. It was a, it was a great opportunity for me. I started taking care of the university of Pittsburgh, um, all the, all the teams, all the sports teams, Carnegie Mellon university. And then Jim Bradley asked me to stay on as a team physician with him for the Steelers. So that opened a lot of doors. Um, I was the second female orthopedic surgeon at that time in the NFL, uh, as you guys know, Leanne Curl in Baltimore, uh, was the first. And so, uh, it was, it was a great experience. And uh, I was with them for 11 years um, as a team physician. I feel like, Doc, I feel like that's a theme. Baltimore Ravens just doing something quicker, better <laughs> right. than Pittsburgh Steelers. Right? <laughs> no? Okay, so, okay. Uh, so yeah. Anyway, that was, it, was, it was great all around. Um, and uh, so then I came here to, to Inova in, in Northern Virginia. And Inova recruited me to come build their sports medicine practice. They did not have a, um, a lot of employed physicians, unlike MedStar, where a lot of the physicians are employed. Innova was just a hospital system, had five hospitals, five ambulatory surgery centers, um, and they wanted to build a, um, a, a practice, basically, of physicians and build a sports medicine program. So I came to do that. So it's been really fun. So I came in 2014 and got to build the program from the ground up. So we had nothing. And now we are opening our eighth office. We have, I think we have 26 uh, physicians now. Um, we've partnered with PTs. So it's been a great experience uh, and really fun to build and put the team together. And my what model was, was... That's so... That's... Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, model. <laughs> I was going to say, that's such an interesting shift because you're working for a team, you're you're working for the Steelers, you're in Pittsburgh, and Anova finds you and says, we want to build this thing. And so that sparks your interest in terms of building something. It's not something physicians always jump into. What was it about that opportunity that really excited you? Yeah, it was kind of mid-career, I guess not. I mean, I had young kids and I had, I was either going to do something at that point or I was going to stay until my kids graduated from high school. And I felt like they were at this age where maybe I could take an opportunity. And I really admired what Dr. Fu had done. He had done this at the University of Pittsburgh and really built this comprehensive program, which was really unique in the country. And so I was really intrigued to build that. And I felt like this was a great area. Northern Virginia was untapped. There are a lot of great orthopedic surgeons, a lot of great PTs, but no one was really collaborative, I felt like when I looked at it. And so I felt like, let's let's build this together and put something where we can really take care of the athlete from you know start to finish and um, injury prevention, nutrition, you know, PT, strength and conditioning, this whole aspect. So, um, and I don't know if you know the concussion world, but concussion program at the University of Pittsburgh was really on the forefront. And so I wanted to take that program and build that here. So I hired two of our neuropsychologists from there, one of the vestibular therapists and brought them over. And that program's grown tremendously now too. So they see about a hundred patients a week. So, um, it's so cool to hear. And so we just had our own um, Dr. Christy Chiesa on. She came out of the UPMC system. Um, she's a PT and she does all of our concussion stuff. So that's been an awesome marriage between, I mean, it's a, like a rejoining of that Pittsburgh world down in Baltimore. Yeah. Um, and that, that has been really cool. So definitely up to date on that. Um, when, what's, what was the biggest difference in that role at Innova versus what you were doing up with the Steelers and UPMC? You know, I was very clinical and academic and um, at the University of Pittsburgh, this was a little bit of a difference. I, I was still, I wanted to be clinical. I didn't want to give up my clinical side, but I also wanted to have this opportunity to build something. So I took on a little more of an administrative role. Um, but then also in that first year when I came here, um, the Nationals and the and the Redskins at the time reached out to me also. So within that, within the first two years, I became the head team physician for both teams, which was really, uh, you know, a lot, actually. It was 
it was really fun, but it was hard because I was really building our program and then also functioning in those in that role and trying to build those my the program that we had also with those teams. They were also looking to build some comprehensive medicine and you know again integrating everything. Um, and so we, we did that and it was it was really fun and great. So I still take care of the nationals. I left the Washington football team last year, but it's been it was it was really a great um, it's, it's been great. Nationals um, putting together all of Inova, treating and operating how many hours a week? It's kind of endless. I don't count them. Endless. And and then what was amazing? What was amazing was, you know, um, Doc. I met you at um, the Mid Atlantic Shoulder Conference, Macy's in in DC, um, and I remember meeting you, and, and just like trying to you know talk shoulders and, and understand who you are and where you came from. And I remember you answering your phone like in the middle of our conversation and talking about ACLs to your neighbor um, and. <laughs> And I'm like, how is she balancing all these things? Also, I thought we we're at a shoulder conference. And when I reached out to you to do this pod, I'm like, let's talk shoulders. And you're like, no, 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 I want to talk ACLs. Um, it's, I mean, it's so wide ranging. How do you manage all of these things? You know, I think as a team physician, if in sports medicine, you, you want to know everything, right? You want to, because you take care of the athlete as, as a whole. So being a team physician, I've got to know everything. Not that I have to be the expert in every aspect of everything, but I have to be able to diagnose and and figure out something and then figure out how to help that person. Um, and so that's, that's always been what I have thought of myself as, but, you know, as, as a surgeon, I treat shoulders and knees that that's my, my specialty. Um, but again, you know, I'll treat simple ankle fractures or simple things that come through on my athletes, everything else. So my, my belief is you should get the best person and the most experienced and uh, take, taking care of your, of your patients too. So, um, but and yeah, knees and shoulders are my expertise. Your jam. Okay. So, um, diving a little bit, a little bit more into that, how is it that you have built this team and torn down all of these silos between rehab, sports medicine? What is your secret to creating collaboration? Yeah, you know, that, that's a hard thing, you know, honestly, because I didn't really appreciate all these little silos. I've always thought, oh yeah, everyone works together. And I never knew what went on behind the scenes. And when I worked with Dr. Fu, I remember in Pittsburgh, he, he said, it's so important. You have to take care of everything. You've got to have the athletic trainer and the physical therapist. You've got to have the nutritionist. And he really embed, put that in my, in my mind. And I thought, oh, that's easy. Yeah, we'll get everyone together. We'll all do it. And then I started realizing, no, everyone wants to sort of own that patient. Um, and not, not always, right? People who have not worked in that environment kind of feel like it's their patient. And so putting together the teams that, that, that took a lot, actually, that first year or two and just saying, hey, you know, as an athletic trainer uh, with the baseball team, like you, you guys have, you've been here for 30 years. You guys know more than any of us. And when I bring in a new PT to work with the athletic trainer who's got experience, I've got to explain that this is how, how, we, how we work. Everyone has their own expertise, right? Um, and we can all share and we, we can all be better if we work together. Um, and so now I actually serve as a different role. So I serve as a chairman of Inova Sports Medicine, but I also serve as the president of the musculoskeletal service line. Meaning I oversee all of orthopedics across our system. So there are about 250 orthopedic surgeons. I oversee the 200 plus outpatient physical therapists, as well as the inpatient physical therapists. So it all falls under musculoskeletal. So it's kind of nice now because now I actually oversee all the programs. So it really helps us to collaborate and to work because as, a, as orthopedics is growing, I can work with a physical therapist and say, we need more people. We need more of this. We need more 
expertise in this area. Hey, let's grow this area. So now it really helps actually, because we really have a strong collaboration. And again, I love, I, lo I, Go ahead. I love hearing that. I love hearing that because I feel like sometimes I feel overworked with what I do. And then I hear that someone's managing 200 physical therapists, <laughs> not to mention the other things. You're <laughs> not doing. So, directly. So I that, very, that, okay. got lots of, just, I got lots of good people. Yeah. We have to have, you know, honestly, it takes a team. Secret. It, it, it does. Takes it takes a team. And I think that's a secret. Yeah. Um, and, and that's so great that you're kind of bringing all of those things together with all of those titles and all of those accolades. It sounds like you have been insanely successful. I know that that doesn't come without some type of failure or setback. What is a failure or an apparent failure that has set you up for later success? Let me just tell you, first of all, the successes are also because of my team, you know, it's not, not, not what I've, <laughs> I've done, but I think that, you know, letting, picking the right people and having them lead and, and letting them take the reins and lead that that's what makes a program successful. So it's really about my team from every, from every aspect, from the medical assistants who room the patient to the administrators who are helping lead. So, um, so that's, that's been key. And my partners have been, uh, been terrific. Uh, you know, as far as failures, gosh, there, there are failures all along the way. And I think um, my, my mom, I, my mom raised me as a single mom and, uh, and she was, she broke a lot of barriers herself. And she always told me, you've got to take a chance. You've got to step out, outside of your comfort zone and try something because that's where all the magic happens, right? You're never going to, you know, go and do these things unless you go try it. And if you fail, you fail, but then figure out why you failed. And so I think that, that kind of, that stuck hard. And I remember her pushing me, you know, to go. And, uh, I, I wanted to be the commissioner of athletics when I was, in high school, you know, they're like, you have the, the president and this and that. And the commissioner of athletics, I thought was cool. My mom said, go, you know, go run for it. And I went to a big LA public school system. I had 850 kids in my class. And I said, mom, but when I do this, I have to go and I have to give this talk at lunchtime and stand up in front of everybody and, and give my, and she's like, so what, go do it. And I was like, this is really intimidating. I don't want to do it. And, and the kid who's running against me, he's the most popular kid in our school and the girls and the guys all love him. And She's like, just go run for it, you know? So it was funny. I remember I, I ran and I, I looked around and there were like, whatever, 800, you know, 1,000 kids out there. Um, and anyway, long the short, I, I wound up winning that, that. And I was a commissioner of athletics. And I'm like, how did that happen? And she's like, well, you, you tried and you went out there and you showed this passion for it. And, you know, whatever it was, you took a chance, right? Um, and so it was kind of from that standpoint, I thought, yeah, maybe I'd both start taking some chances. And if I fail, I fail. And I think in every little failure, if you look back and whatever it is, you know, you don't run your race fast enough, you don't win your game, you don't do all these things you look back on in life. And um, the failures of typically because you're, you're, you're not prepared because you didn't prepare yourself, right? Um, if you're running a marathon and you don't do as well as you want to do, or you wind up walking your last six miles. And um, I think those are the things that, that I look back on and say, yeah, I wasn't, I was not prepared. You know, I, I took on too much. And so I think those are what I've learned from the failures, um, a personal kind of setback and not really a, a failure per se, but I was, um, I, I do half Ironmans and triathlons. And so I was out, only half. Um, <laughs> only, only, you're only doing half. Okay. Yeah. I, I was out, um, uh, riding, uh, one morning and I got in a bad accident and flipped my bike and wound up having a four part proximal humerus fracture, a bunch of broken ribs. And so I had three surgeries on it and it's, it's, it's been a long haul, you know, and I think that that happened early on. That happened when I first started here in a couple, a couple years in. And I think I learned at that point, it wasn't a failure, but it was really my first big setback that I had. 
I felt like here I am building this program. I just got my role as the head team physician with the Nationals and the Redskins, and I'm super excited about it, hiring my, my my team. And then this happened to me, and I was like, wait, wait, I, I've never had this. You know, I felt like I was on this trajectory up, and I was doing everything I wanted to do, and all of a sudden everything was let down. And I'm like, I can't do anything. I can't operate. I can't ride and run and do all the things that I like to do. And so, what am I going to wow. do? And that that to me was a really big learning experience. I'd always kind of believed in this leaning in thing that Sheryl Sandberg always says, you know, lean in and as a, as a female leader or whatever, you need to lean in and put yourself out there. And that's how I always felt like, but all of a sudden I couldn't do that anymore. And I had to lean on and I had to get people to help me. And I had to call my physical therapist that I work with and say, you've got to help me. You've got to do this. And I wasn't a great patient, but all of a sudden my, you know, my, my partners, I relied on my partners to help me, um, my family. And so I think that to me was a big learning experience. You can't burden it all. You can't shoulder everything. Yeah. I think that can be tough. I mean, as such a high achiever, sometimes it's really hard to say, you know, now I cannot do everything. How do I lean on those around me? It sounds like you've built an awesome team to do that. that that's, that's really an awesome lesson. As far as lessons go, what lesson do you want to teach your physicians? What do you wish orthopedic surgeons were better at? I think better at listening to their patients. I mean, that's the most common thing that I hear um, from my patients. Like, oh, I went to this person and they, they just said, I'm, I'm okay, I'm okay, you're okay, it's fine, you're going to be fine. I can give an example. I even saw a patient yesterday, a young 16-year-old girl who was sledding and hit her knee. And she had seen several orthopedic surgeons as well as several physical therapists. And everyone said, oh, you have patellofemoral pain. You have patellofemoral pain. This happened for four years ago. She's, she's miserable. And she came to see me and you started listening to her and you're like, probably have a pretty bad cartilage injury. You start hearing her story, you get an MRI and she's got, you know, entire, her entire cartilage has gone under her patella. She needs a osteochondral allograft to her patella now. And she's 16, but she's like, oh my, you're the first person who actually listened to the story and told me I need to get further imaging. And, um, and so I think that's, that's what we have to do. You know, this is why we went into it. I mean, I'm a surgeon. I love to operate. That's, that's the, <laughs> that's fun to be in the operating room. Right. But the fun part is also getting people better. So listening to them and you can often just pick up, you often don't need an MRI, right? You can just, you can hear the story. I often, just by listening to the story before I even touch the patient, I'll make a diagnosis in my head because you can almost always make that diagnosis. You, you see I that love too. That. And I, I definitely see that. Um, I think listening is something we talk a lot about on the pod. It's, it's sometimes it's so hard to listen to your patient just because of uh, the construct of a practice, things are so busy. And, and how do you carve out the time to one, listen to the patient, but also carve out time for all these other things like taking care of Dr. West or keeping up on the literature or staying current? What is your secret to time management? You know, that's hard. <laughs> that, I have no, I wish I had the answer for I'm that. Not, but... I'm not, I'm not going to ask you easy ones. <laughs> uh, you know, that's, that's a tough question. I think you, you have to make time for the things, right? Uh, we like like you. I mean, we all have busy practices, and we're all trying to squeeze these patients in, and and that's that, to me hard when you have somebody a complex patient come in, and they have a long story, and they want to tell a long story, and how do you sort of guide them through this story, but not not rush them? And so I think there are simple things that you learn, right? Like sitting sitting lower than the patient does. I always sit down with them. You know, either you're putting your hand on your shoulder, whatever whatever it is, right? And and trying to make them feel, and then maybe helping them guide through the story if it's a long story. And hey, like let's do this. And hey, why don't you lay down and trying to start at least the exam as they're talking, if you have somebody who's long-winded. But how do you 
manage time management is always hard. There's never enough time. And I think that, you know, depending on you, you have a family, you have a practice, you have what, what you know, your, your own personal health and how, how do you make it? But I think you have to sit down each week and figure out, hey, where for me, exercise is a big deal, but where I'm in the week, you know, maybe it's not going to be every day this week because I'm super busy, but if I can squeeze it in three times, maybe I'll leave at five in the morning and go to the gym and work out, or maybe I'll do this or whatever it is. You try and plan it, right? So, so you can make sure you're getting what you want. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, it's about seven o'clock in the morning in Baltimore. Have you been to the gym already today? I have not actually Be today took off. Doc, no. Okay. Thank, I usually thank you do. For being but... human. I appreciate, appreciate that. Of course you do. Of course you do. I appreciate that. Um, in, in the last few things that you said, um, it, things that really resonated with me were those tricks of getting down to the patient's level, maybe even below the patient, um, having an understanding of where you want to get to in the story and, and coaching them along. I love that. I also heard you say, you have an idea just from reading the story, hearing the story of what's wrong with that patient. I always like to go into that room and say, I know it's a knee pain. I know it's a knee patient. Here are the things, here's the list of things that could possibly cause pain in that knee. Let me just start ticking them off. Uh, it wasn't really traumatic. There was no pop. Okay, let's take off ligaments. Or um, they don't have problems with deep squatting or there's something. Okay, let's take off meniscus or whatever. And then you're left with something. And now you jump into your tests to try to prove it, but already you've ruled out so many things. And so I think those are three awesome tricks that sports PTs that docs can do. Uh, you walk in with that list, you start ticking things off as you hear them, not necessarily examining. You sit down with a patient. Maybe you make physical contact with a patient if appropriate, obviously. Is there anything else that sticks out to you that will lead you to, to get an awesome interaction? I think it's helpful to, to have somebody with them also if they're if they're not alone if they have a friend or their mom and dad or whatever it is and someone will often mention something else and say hey i i watch you you know i had a patient yesterday same thing the kid said i'm actually fine you know I, i'm okay it doesn't and the mom said that listen every time you get up i i see you you're, you're limping you're doing this you're and so having someone else's input is also helpful because you know how it is when you go to see a physician you start to forget what what you know exactly all the details unless you wrote them down um, yep. so I think yeah, that's no the... question. And I think, I think that's great. I think writing them down is awesome. Um, I know I get nervous talking to the great Robin West, so I'm sure people <laughs> walk into that room and they're like, Duh, that's her. I saw her online. <laughs> um, okay. So I have, we work a lot with, um, Hopkins athletes. We do a ton with lacrosse just by chance. Like as I start talking specifically to these, these Hopkins athletes, I start hearing about what they want to do for a living. I start hearing about who their inspirations are. I've had three different Hopkins students say, I want to be Robin West. What would you say is most inspirational about your career and path to date? <laughs> it's funny. Um, you know, I, I hear different things. I get a lot of emails from students, college students, high school students. And I think that there are a variety of things, right? I think a lot of, you know, young boys will reach out to me because they're like, it's so cool. You take care of the, you're a doctor in the NFL or the MLB or whatever. So I, I hear that. And, um, but then I hear from some of the young women who will reach out and say, I've never had a role model like you. I don't, there are not a lot of women that I see on this side and Hey, what, how did you, what, what'd you do to get there? Um, so I think it's, it's a variety of, of things that people reach out to me for, um, and so I, I don't really ever think of myself as that inspiring, but I guess to some people, everyone's got different, you know, role or goals in life. And maybe they look at it and they, they see something that I've done. Yeah. 
I, I heard an I heard an awesome story where I, I think you went in to talk to some of the Hopkins students, um, and it might have even been specifically Hopkins athletes, and and I think they sent out an email saying uh, Dr. West will be here to to do whatever. She made it her business to come to that lecture or speech, and she went up to you afterwards, and she was amazed at how much just time you gave her to talk and interact. And and I think that really resonates with everything you're saying with the patients is give them the time, listen. You never know how far that's going to take someone. You never know how much uh, impact that's really going to have. I think that's an awesome lesson. That's something that I think is inspirational about your career. It's like it's those little interactions. It's the interpersonal skill. That's what leads to those accolades and, and those high positions and your ability to build a team. But it's that ability to connect one-on-one that, that's inspirational to me. So next time you're on a pod, Doc, and someone asks you what's inspirational about your career, you should say, it's my ability to connect and interact one-on-one. There you go. Well, thanks. I you you know, you know, actually, the yeah. most fun is always getting like a little note from somebody, right? Somebody who I interacted with 10 years ago, and they're like, you inspired me to do Now I'm doing this. When I get those, I'm like, that like made my entire day. So to me, that those are the most inspirational to me. That's what keeps me going each day. The days that you're having a hard day and things aren't going well, right? And then you get something like that. Like, wow. So you have the same thing, right? Where your patient comes in and you're like, you helped me. You did this. It, it's it's unbelievable. And and it's really making that that patient or that next generation of practitioner the center is is absolutely what, what keeps me going. Let's let's um change gears a little bit. I want to get into clinical um, specifics, specifically with ACLs, because you're a, a Freddie <laughs> Fu uh, prodigy. Um, these rates of ACL tears are skyrocketing. Uh, I saw it's going up 2.3% annually, and that's true for the last 20 years. Why are we seeing such an increase in ACL injuries? Yeah, you know, I think there are a lot of uh, a lot of reasons. I think um, well, one of the reasons we know that females have a much higher ACL tear rate than males do, and, and there are a lot more female athletes, right? Now, if you look at Title IX, ever since Title IX, that, that rate of, of female athlete participation and ACL injuries has gone up dramatically. So that that's probably one of them. You know, the other thing is um, is we're playing year round sports. People are specializing earlier. So if you if you look at that and uh, we, we see it in a lot of sports so, you know, I, I take care of these baseball athletes and they're like, this is all they play all year round. And, um, and so I think that just the same thing, this real, very hyper-focused on one sport, not being a multi-sport athlete. Um, so biomechanically, I think you're setting yourself up for, for some injuries. You know, if you look at, uh, in the NFL and you look at these, uh, the draft picks, you know, 89, 90% of them are multi-sport athletes, right? This so, and, and this is what's made them successful. So when you're getting, when you're, when you're taking care of these young kids who are all they're focused on is one sport, I always say, Hey, look, look at these professional athletes. These guys played many sports and this is what made, made them a better athlete. So trying to push that, I think that those are probably the, the reasons we're seeing them. Yeah. Okay. So female athlete, unfortunately ruptures her ACL. She walks in to see Dr. West. What graphs are you using to fix that ACL? Yeah, Yoni, that's, uh, you know, it's, it's tricky. I, I do a very individualized graft. I don't just do one graft. I, uh, I look at the patient. We talk about what their sport is. Um, we talk about the graft choices. In my, in my hands, there are four graft choices. There's the allograft, a cadaver. That is not an option for me. I, I rarely ever do that. I was going to say, that's a choice? Okay. <laughs> that okay, is good. not a choice. So that's a 25% okay. failure rate under the age of 25. So that's not a uh, choice. So we, then we have quadriceps tendon, patellar tendon, and hamstring. To me, a female athlete is not going to get a hamstring autograph because 
if you look at most female athletes, you know, 70% of their injuries are non-contact. And why, why do these happen in female athletes? There are a variety of reasons. There are hormonal reasons, biomechanical reasons. Female athletes are typically more quad dominant, especially our soccer and lacrosse players. They have stronger quads and weaker hamstrings. So why would I harvest their hamstrings and put them at higher risk for a re-injury? So in my hands, but they're not getting a hamstring autographed. So now we're down to the patellar tendon or quad tendon. So, and, and that's where we go. And then we start talking about the graft choices and the, and the benefits of each one. If you look at two years out, they have similar outcomes, you know, similar failure rates. They're both have a low failure rate. So now we have to talk about complications. So patellar tendon grafts are a great graft. It's kind of the gold standard. It's been around the longest, but it's an incision in front of the knee. And so kneeling on that knee is going to be, you're always going to have some symptoms. Numbness is very common. Most people will have numbness around that incision and down their, their, their leg from a patellar tendon harvest. Um, and the chance of anterior knee pain, you're a PT, you know, the anterior knee pain with the patellar tendon. A hundred, hundred percent. Right. Yeah. I mean, everyone has it at some point and, you know, probably 20% of people have a lingering pain up to about a year and it may even extend a little beyond that. So that that's an issue with patellar tendon, quad tendon. Knee, pain is really uncommon. Actually, pain is not a common complaint actually after a quad tendon. Numbness is not a complaint. They're, the skin nerves are not, there There are not many up there. In the, and so you're not really going to get a lot of numbness that travels down the leg um, from the infantile branch of the saphenous nerve that does not go by, by there. So you don't get the numbness. Um, and the kneeling pain isn't there. <laughs> so, you know, what, what's the downfall of it? The, the downfall, and you probably have seen this, but the downfall is getting that quad strength back, right? That active hyperextension back early on is hard. And at six months, if you look at the quad and patellar tendon, the quad tendon lags behind the patellar tendon for quad strength. So, but again, at that year to two years out, they're very similar, but it's just in that early rehab and we're taking care of high level athletes and they want to get back at nine, 10, 11 months. We have to think about all those complications, anterior knee pain, you, quad weakness. I tell you, I love, I love that quad tendon compared to patellar tendon. If those are my two options, I'm leaning towards quad as long as the surgeon has done a million of them and they're equally as comfortable. I love that quad tendon. When you talk to me about um, lagging and quad strength, quad versus patellar tendon grafts, I think some of that's on us, on the PT. Like we need to be loading appropriately. We need to know the strength and conditioning principles to load properly. If quads behind patellar tendon, I think patellar tendon often sucks at that because that front knee pain is so, is so pronounced. So if we can live in quad tendon, and Doc, you can get your colleagues to get better at that harvest and fixation, let's just go all in on the quad tendon if you're robbing me of the ability to do hamstring. I love a good hamstring because <laughs> the ace, that rehab's so easy, but I totally so hear what easy. you're saying. It is so, really easy. So, and I, you know, I still do, you know, again, I, I, I probably would have a hamstring if I had mine done, but... Um, I think that, um, I've been doing quad tendons for probably about, about 10, 15 years now. I've been doing them a long time and, and I do a lot of them and, um, and you're right. I mean, it's, it's a very, it's, you have to be perfect on your harvest. You have to have good fixation, great fixation. Cause that was the main issue early on. We didn't have great fixation op options we have great fixation now. So, but the rehab is important. And so I really put it on the patient, on the PT and on myself, right? So my part, they always say, oh, doc, you fixed my knee. I'm like, I, I didn't do anything. It's you and your therapist. Like my part is small. I took an hour, we did your surgery and now you're moving on. But I, you know, even in the, in the preoperative holding area, I tell them, I say, you have to get your quad activated. Post-op, I want you in the recovery room. I want you getting that terminal active hyperextension. I want to see your heel pop off the table. So even after surgery, I walk out and I make sure I'm like there and they do it typically. 
because we do have a nerve block and we do just a, a saphenous nerve block. So we're just doing, an, uh, you know, a, not a motor nerve block. So they can do that actively. And then I have Love them that. again, go to therapy within one to two days after surgery and immediately start getting that activated. And like you said, Yoni, it's such a difference in the therapists, <laughs> you know, because some therapists aren't comfortable doing that and are like, hey, I don't want them to get a hy hyperextension. I want you to have that active hyperextension. If you can get that heel pop yeah. for me, week one, I am thrilled. doesn't happen usually. I love but... that. I think I say the words heel pop more than any other words in the English language. <laughs> so I love hearing them from the doc. That's totally true. Talk to me about that fixation because the sports PT or let me rephrase that. I don't know a ton about that. Tell me what's better about the fixation, what you're doing now that you weren't doing 10 years ago. Yeah, you know, it's an all soft tissue graft. So we always think about how, how do we fix soft tissue? We can put screws in. You know, if you have a patellar tendon, it's bone to bone healing. It's it's quick healing. We know in six weeks, the bone's going to be healed. The graft may not be ligamentized. It's not mature, but the bone's healed in the tunnels. With the soft tissue, we're putting a screw or we're trying to, whatever we are trying to fix it that way. But now the soft tissue has to heal to the bone. And we know that can take three months. So we need to have really good fixation for those first three months. Otherwise, we're going to start to get some slippage, right? And the graph's going to lengthen. So um, there are all kinds of options now. There are all kinds of button fixation and suturing techniques. And they come up with all kinds of, and every company has a different product. But there are a lot of different options. And whatever the surgeon's comfortable with, right? We, we have to make the graft in the operating room. So we have to be efficient. We have to have a great, well-fixed graft. And so the options and so, are and so broad. I'm going to... Uh, so I'm going to get a little bit granular here. So you're drilling through your femoral tunnel, right? And when you try to get that piece of quad tendon to grow into the femur, yeah. what are you doing to bolt that tendon down? Like, I'm just, I'm just thinking about like a piece of paper shredding over a screw as it gets <laughs> tugged. So tell me what prevents Yeah, that. so there, there are options. So I don't use a screw in the femur. So there are, you can put a screw in and there are different kinds. There's biocomposite, which are like calcium triphosphate screws. They can turn into bone. There are plastic or peak screws. Um, and so that those are options that you can put that won't shred the graft. You can put them in and kind of push that graft in. You can also use a button fixation and where you sew, it's a little button and this button sits on the cortex of the femur. So what you do is you drill a blinded tunnel in the femur, and then you make a small little drill hole through, and this button passes through the drill hole, pops on the femur, and then holds the graft in, in place. So it's, it's suspensory fixation, it's called. And, and so, so that by doing, tendinous tissue grows into the femur. Into the femur. And so then you've got the circumferential graft in there. And you have the problem is when you put a screw in, you put the graft in, and then all of a sudden, one side of the tunnel is a screw, one side is the graft. With suspensory fixation, the whole tunnel is filled with graft. And if it, you have good fixation and it's not moving and bouncing around, you're going to get good at bony and growth. Um, okay, so that's super interesting. <laughs> you learned that technique when? Early on. That, that, that technique's been around a long time, but around. not for a soft tissue graft. For patellar tendon, it's been around. Um, it's been around for hamstring. Hamstrings are easier because you can loop the hamstring over a button and fix it that way. But the quad tendon is just a one singular graft, right? So how do we attach a button? We can't loop it around. So that's where these techniques have changed over the past couple of years, trying to sew the button into the graft. Gotcha. Okay. That's really interesting. It makes me think about your part of your origin story coming from Pittsburgh, because you mentioned it's one singular graft. I want to know what a double bundle procedure is. When's the last time you did a double bundle procedure? Why don't more people do? I just want to talk about double bundles 
for the next 40 <laughs> minutes. So how's that? So tell, tell, tell me about what, like break down the double bundle and, and the history of it as an option. Yeah. You know, it's, um, probably I'm trying to think of when it was probably in the mid two thousands, you know, mid to later 2000, 2005 to 2010, um, in Pittsburgh, Dr. Fu started doing double bundles and he, he had learned the technique in Asia and, um, and really the, the goal of it, and Dr. Fu is always thinking outside the box and he did not jump on techniques early on. He always put a lot of thought into it. And so his thought was, you know, let, let's try and make the ACL even better. You know, we know we have good results as surgeons. We say, okay, the failure rate's 5% or 10%. It's pretty low failure rate. But when you look at it, the return to play, we know it's like 65%, right? Return to play after an ACL. And so that, that's a low, re, very low percentage. And why is that? Is that because they have an unstable knee because they have pain because they're psychologically not ready. What it, what is it? And so, and also when you look at these ACLs 20 years down the road, 10 years down the road, most people have bad arthritis in their knee. And so Dr. Fu said, well, there's something going on, you know, and is it, is it the biological response in the knee? Is it all those bad enzymes that are released or is it that we can make the ACL better? Can we do a better job at putting the ACL in? And so his thought was, let's try and do an anatomic ACL. Let's put the ACL exactly where it belongs and let's try and reproduce it perfectly. Because at that point, everyone was doing transtibial tunnels. So you would drill your tibial tunnel and go straight up and drill your femoral tunnel. And this was not normal anatomy, right? So you got good anterior posterior uh, support, but rotationally the knee was just rotating around the graft. So at that point, um, this double bundle was, was developed really in, in Asia and then was brought over here and Freddie brought it over here uh, to the United States. And, the goal again was to control the rotational stability, to, to reproduce both bundles of the ACL, and so making two femoral tunnels, two tibial tunnels, and so. And yeah, using I did what? Move. What would you use? What Different do you graphs. use as the graft? You, you could use a hamstring, you could use a quad tendon, and you could split the graft. And so he okay. he uh, we had a big study that we did um, with with quad, and we looked at the biomechanical differences, so functional differences, and then biomechanically having them run on the treadmill six months, a year out, and seeing if there are biomechanical differences. And, uh, and and that study showed us something. That study showed us that the clinical outcomes were the same, basically. Biomechanical, maybe slightly better with a double bundle, but not like we saw in the lab. You know, in the, in the lab, when you looked at it, you know, this is, was so much better, the double bundle, but, but clinically it wasn't showing up. And so, and there, there are a lot of issues with these double bundles, you know, two tunnels on the femur, two on the tibia. And if you do happen to fail your ACL and all of a sudden you've got these big expanded tunnels you're dealing with and revising them can be difficult. So, and it's and a very technical procedure. A, Go ahead. And we see a ton, we see a ton of stiffness. Um, there aren't a ton of double bundles coming out, but for whatever reason, I, I can come up with a few, you know, I can, I can make a, a, a hypothesis as to why they're tighter just because there's so much more being packed into that knee, but they are so damn tight, like getting extensions tougher, getting flexions tougher. Um, is that possibly why they're not as d done yeah. frequently? Uh, you know, I, I think, it, it, I think that the reason you're seeing that is probably because biomechanically, probably the tunnels aren't placed perfectly. You're going to see that because if you get too anterior of a femoral tunnel, you're going to lose flexion, right? And if you have two anterior tibial tunnel, you're going to lose extension. So it's a very, very technical procedure. You have to have these tunnels perfectly placed because like you said, there's a lot of graft and you've got these two big tunnels. So um, the quad tendon is the same too, Yoni. I don't know if you see that too, but extension loss is much more common with a quad. And I think, again, it's a lot of tissue. Um, and if you're off a millimeter or two, you're going to lose extension. And so I think you have to, that's, a, that's something else as well. Like you said, you've got a lot of collagen in there and 
but again, you have to be really perfect in the OR and getting these these tunnels perfect. And and the I think that the double bundle, the problem with double bundle is too many people started doing it, just saying, oh yeah, this is great, and not really understanding the the anatomy and or how to get these tunnels perfectly placed. There, it's difficult. It's not not easy. Uh, I can, it does not sound easy, especially to the, to the sports PT. So I, I can certainly understand that. Talk to me about um, the ALL. How often are you doing any type of ALL procedure? Uh, where do you see the future of the ALL? Yes, yeah, so the anterior lateral ligament is uh, you know, that that's that's almost always injured with ACL tears. If you look in the literature and you look at biomechanically, and we look at these MRI studies, between sixty and ninety percent of standard ACL tears have an injury to the ALL. And the ALL is just that posterior capsule, right? Or sorry, whoop, just that um, anterior lateral capsule. My light fell. I had a light up here. Good. I, I, was, I was wondering. <laughs> What's that noise? Um, and so um, it, it's an anterior lateral capsule that gets injured. And the question is, you know, how important is it to fix, right? Do we have to fix all of them? We've, we've never have <laughs> in the past, what, 30 years since we've been doing ACLs until more recently. Um, but again, it's trying to perfect that, make that anatomic ACL. And does that control some of the lateral rotation, some of that, that pivot shift phenomenon? That's, that's what, how this injury happens. So I, I do, I, I do a, a modified technique. So I do a iliotibial band tenodesis and I'll do that only on, on a revision case. So somebody who has had a failure, they have a very unstable knee, they're super hyperlaxed, got a lot of hyperflexion, sorry, hyperextension. I consider adding in an ALL or a IT bantinodesis. The problem with the ALL is it's a little bit like the double bundle in the sense of it's being done a ton right now. And if you're not anatomically perfect with your tunnels or your graft is too big, you can overconstrain the knee. You can lose extension. And if you follow these patients and you look at the studies coming out more recently now, you're getting a lot more lateral compartment wear. Because again, if you're overconstraining that lateral compartment, and so I think there's, you know, are we going to go to doing them always? Maybe, but this has to be perfected first. You know, again, what kind of graph, what kind of fixation, how do you, what flexion angle do you fix it at? If you flex it, fix it in 30 degrees of flexion and over constrain the knee, you're never going to get the extension. I think that's, I think that's what I've seen. I, I've seen it, by the way, I, I, early on, I felt like I saw it with hamstring graphs where, Docs were so leery to do hamstring grafts because they're like, hey, we haven't figured it out yet. We're not sure. Maybe the graft, maybe the harvesting isn't as tight or as specific. And then slowly, I just felt like it started getting better clinically. And now all of a sudden, at least the in in my snapshot or my outcomes, hamstring is just as good as patellar tendon. It's not like I'm seeing hamstrings come back being like, oh, we ruptured because it was hamstring tendon. I just don't see that. I would say the same thing with the ALL. Even in the last like three years where I'm seeing docs are doing it, first of all, as the primary. Um, and, and second of all, they're not as stiff. We're not losing the extension and flexion like we used to. And, and I guess, and this is why I love having MDs on this podcast, is because we start to hear that side of things where you guys are getting better about the placement. Oh, that's why the flexion is no longer so so adhered, or that's why they can get to terminal extension when they're getting an ALL, because you guys are getting better at it. So, so I love hearing that. Um, so it's a combination, so right? I mean, you, and, and you guys are also rehab. And you guys understand the rehab process, or, or you can, hey, I can push through this. I think initially when we're trying these new procedures, we're often like, okay, let's go really slow. Let's not move them. But actually, it's the opposite. You really do want to be yeah, doing that hyperextension yeah. early um, on. And that's that's the must. That's the must for us. We preach that like crazy. Obviously, you preach it like crazy. What's one other must for your patients during the rehab process, specifically ACL? 
that, that's a, first of all, yeah, the hyperextension is really a must and, and getting that, um, that quad activation. I, I am a fan of weight bearing as soon as possible. The thing that makes me absolutely bonkers is when somebody comes in still wearing their brace and they're at four to six weeks out from surgery. I saw a kid yesterday who's wearing his brace. He had, he had a standard simple ACL and he's six weeks out and he said, my PT said, I have to wear it. I'm like, I, I would like you out of the brace on day one, if I could. And I said, the only reason you're in the brace is because your quad is shut down, right? Until you get good quad activation, I want that brace off. So to me, I want them out of the brace. I want their gait normalized. The problem is they come in in that brace and they, they cannot get that hyperextension. They can't get that heel to toe gait in the brace. And so as and soon as that mess. brace comes and off, it, it's a it mess. And it glues like this. And, and, and <laughs> like they sit in that brace and they're still sitting in flexion. That, that drives me bonkers. Um, so I love that it bothers, that bothers you <laughs> as much. Now, once they're glued in that flexion, God forbid, but we've all seen it, right? Like they have trouble getting that terminal extension. When are you considering um, doing something about that? When are you worried about that? Yeah, early on. I mean, you know, that's something, you know, I like them by six weeks to have that full range of motion, active hyperextension, full flexion. If I don't see it at that point, we start to really say, hey, we're, we're going to need to do something if I, don't, if I don't see you get better in the next two weeks. So at that point, I start watching them very closely. So we're six weeks out, let's say, I say, hey, I'm going to see you back in two weeks. You have to do this. And we start talking about prone leg hangs, you know, active quad sets, putting something under their knee to get that active hyperextension, you know, maybe using something like the ideal knee brace to get hyperextension. Um, so we're trying to go down that road and I say, listen, if I see you back at eight weeks, we're going to start talking about a manipulation if you're not better. And so I'd say by 10 to 12 weeks, if they are not where they need to be, then we're going to get an MRI first of all, because that can be caused by two things really by either a cyclops lesion, right? The tibial tunnels to anterior and you get graft impingement, or is it because they truly have arthrofibrosis? True arthrofibrosis is a big, big problem but they're typically gonna lose extension and flexion with arthrofibrosis. They're gonna have a swollen knee. It's gonna be very stiff and fibrotic, no patellar mobility. And, and, and that patellar mobility is something else I push hard to. I like them getting that patella mobilized immediately. I love that. Um, okay, so this is, this is very similar to the interview process when you come in to be a true sports PT. This is exactly what we walk through. So the, that first question is, when do you push the panic button uh, with that extension? You said six weeks when you really start honing in on them. And by the way, you scared the hell out of me when you said, we're, we're going to have to do something about it. So I guess that's one tactic that you do, right? At six weeks, you scare the hell out of them. Eight weeks, um, you hope that they're already there. When are you doing a manipulation when you pull in that? I, I, by, but before three months, so 10 to 12 weeks, I'd say. Before three months. Yeah. Okay. So After before, three months, okay. you've kind of lost that you, window of opportunity. Do you go manipulation or you, do you do a lysis of adhesions? Depends on what it is. So we get that MRI and we see, right? Is it arthrofibrosis? Is it a cyclops lesion? It's a cyclops lesion and that's all they have. Then it's a, it's a knee scope and debridement. If they have... Um, arthrofibrosis, you know, significant arthrofibrosis, loss of flexion and extension. A lot, sometimes it's an open procedure, actually. Sometimes you have to do an open release. It depends on how stiff they are. Are they going to, you know, go on a medrol dose pack first? So there are a lot of different ways to treat that, but it's usually not just to bend your knee and that's it. It's usually putting the scope in and doing something. That's what, I, okay. So that's what I was going to ask. Do you ever put them to sleep and crank them into flexion and extension or that is gone? We're done with that. Yeah, if someone's missing flexion, I, I would do that, but not extension. You can't do anything on extension. There's a reason they're missing extension. So the camera yeah, goes in yeah. if they're missing extension. 
Okay. And that has to happen before three months. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and you, you mentioned medral dose pack. Are you ever injecting these knees? No, I'm not a fan of injecting. I mean, not, not, not with a steroid. I, I'll inject uh, hyaluronic acid sometimes if they have a little bit of stiffness or, um, you know, we'll, we'll consider something like that, but, um, no, sometimes we'll use Toradol. Okay. So you can use Toradol intraarticularly. Now you sound like an NFL doc. <laughs> Love to hear that. Okay. So, um, let's say that doesn't happen, right? Um, this young female athlete's doing great. She passes by that three months. She has her full motion. Her strength's coming along. When do you start talking about return to sport and how do you, Dr. West, clear these athletes for return to sport? Well, that's up to you guys, actually. So that's a, it's a combination of things, Yoni. I, I, I lay the grape kind of early on. So I see the patient who initially tears her ACL. I say, listen, their return to play is nine to 12 months in my mind. I'm not going to release you before nine months. And typically it's that nine to 12 month window. It may take you a year. And you look in the NFL now, players are taking a year, year and a half. And there's talk in our, in our world about even extending it. Do we now start talking a year and a half to two years? Because as you know, athletes aren't normalizing until that point. So I, I say nine to 12 months is our plan to return to play. Um, and it, it has three things. The graft has to heal. It has to mature. So we know that's going to take nine months, basically, for maturation to happen um, for an autograft. And we know you have to be functionally ready. So my, my point is mine's easy. I look at your knee. Do you have any swelling? How's your range of motion? And then your PT now is going to take you through all this functional testing. So that's, that's a functional part. And then it's a psychological readiness, right? We talked about that 65% return to play, but we also know that the reason most athletes don't return to play is they're not psychologically ready. And so we're, we're assessing that the whole time, you know, from the time they walk in the door with their injury and getting them involved with a sports psychologist if necessary, or just talking to them and making sure, Hey, this is normal. Everyone is like this, right? Everyone's not, not ready. But to me, that whole functional training and having a great PT helps them prepare and helps them get over that, that, you know, being scared to return, right? Because every test you do, and I tell them every functional test you go through and you pass, your confidence is going to increase. And that's going to get you more and more excited and ready to play. So I think the PT plays a big, big role in that aspect. Well, that supports like my notion that PTs are great uh, medical providers, they're great strength coaches. They also have to have some, this, this psych component to the way we interact and the way that we encourage. So, that, so they really need to be great coaches. And I think that makes an awesome PT. I love your outlook. It's so holistic. It reminds me of what our dear friend, Dr. Dries taught me, which I think I've mentioned here previously, which is equally as predictive is the patient's range of motion, the patient's strength and the patient's psych and their confidence in returning to the, to the field, that blew my mind because as a PT, at first I was thinking, it's all physical, right? Like, how do I get this quad massive? How do I get these hamstrings and glutes to kick on? How do I get this motion? But so much is above the neck. Um, th that was really eye-opening to hear, especially from Dr. Dries, who lives in the world of orthopedics, how important that piece is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that, that's not normal. A lot of orthopedic surgeons don't think about that, but that you know, we're like, oh yeah, we that's fixed the great. ACL. And we're like, I, I did it. And, but and that's actually not the, not the part that the part is to get them back and to be successful back on the field. Right. Yeah. yeah. But keep in mind, you still have to fix that ACL. I, I, we can't get it back on the field. <laughs> you, we you do. Yeah. ACL. We have to do a good job at it. And we have to really, again, you know, stay on top of our literature. <laughs> right. So 
love that. And, and it sounds like it, it's really evolving. You also have a hand in selecting the physical therapist at Anova or, or hiring them. It's a piece of the puzzle. How do you find a great physical therapist? What are you looking yeah, you know, for? I'm not, I'm not the personal person who does that. I, you know, we have, we have leaders, we have physical therapy leaders at each, each of our locations. Um, and so, but again, working directly with them and saying what I like, what I want. And I have told, and I've really stressed the importance of working collaboratively. So having our team, every time I see an athlete who I'm not, I have concerns about, I always make sure to call the PT and I want the PD, PT to call me too, because it's open communication is important. So that's what I always say, you know, when you're hiring someone, make sure they understand that we have to work collaboratively. I have to know if there's an issue. I don't want to have someone come back six weeks and be like, oh yeah, for the past four weeks, I've had this problem and no one ever called me about it. And same thing, I, I, want, I, I would hope that they want to hear from me and say, listen, I'm, I'm concerned, like you need to do this a little harder or push this more or whatever it is. How can we phrase that as PTs, reaching out to the doctor? I think the patient needs X. How do I relay that to you appropriately? Everyone is going to want it differently. You know, I, I like being people calling me or texting me and telling me this is what I'm worried about. Hey, doc, I saw this. I'm, I'm concerned about this. And this is what I think is going on because you're the ones who are seeing the athletes, uh, you know, two, three times a week. And so I, I really value your input. Um, I, you know, I, I, everyone's different. Every surgeon's different and wants different input. Some people don't want that. I mean, I have some colleagues who really don't, don't want to hear, but you, you have to hear. <laughs> you're not going to get the person better. Unless you're working together. Yeah, that, okay. Awesome outlook. Um, it, it really is. Now, looking forward, what do you think the future of ACL reconstruction for this adolescent athlete is? You know, I, I think we're, we're reaching that. I mean, I think we've, we've come to the, <clears throat> so far, we're doing this anatomic ACL. We, we have a good graft choices now. Um, we have the, the bear implant, you know, we have the, the ACL re repair techniques, um, available. And wh where are we going? You know, right now, I think the ACL repair is on the, on the forefront. It's something that I, I'd like to see long-term where it's going. We, we know the early results look, look okay. Right. But are, are we ready to use them on, on these high level, you know, these collegiate and professional athletes? Um, so I think that as, as time goes on, we're looking at more biological opportunities as opposed to drilling tunnels and taking a graft and reconstructing, potentially taking more biological approaches. Um, but we've been down this road. How often you know? are I you mean, doing that? Yeah. Uh, I, I'm, I'm part of the clinical trial, so it, it's being offered to our patients. The, the hard part is when you have a 16-year-old girl who wants to go play Division One lacrosse and their parents say, what's the gold standard? You know, and then that's the question, right? The gold standard in my mind is not yet the repair technique. That that's We don't have enough data. We don't have enough long-term data. The gold standard is still an ACL reconstruction. So um, I'm not, not doing a ton of them. Just my the patients I take care of aren't the appropriate ones. Again, if I tore my ACL, I, I, I would opt, I'd raise my hand for a bear implant, um, but I'm not, <laughs> not at that level. So I think bad. that, um, yeah. So I think that, you know, that's, there's so many great, great things happening. We've been down this repair technique for a long time though. I mean, I remember in residency and, you know, putting in the, the Gore-Tex ACLs and, and, uh, then seeing them in, in my practice and seeing all the failures. And so we did repairs early on and had a lot of failures, but again, we had fixation issues. We didn't have all the biological options that we have now um, as far as in, inserting different various implants that are soaked in blood or PRP or stem cells or whatever they are to stimulate healing. We've got a lot of great things on the horizon. 
Yeah, it was exciting to see. I went into the lab with uh, local orthopedic surgeons. So while they were learning that their implant technique, mm-hmm. a few things were fascinating. One was uh, just some, some of the science, like you mentioned, the biologics behind it and the way that um, that bridge is really soaked in those biologics and how well that can constitute a healing repair. That was fascinating. It was crazy to see orthopedic surgeons struggling in the, in the <laughs> OR because... You talk to, we, I talk to orthopedic surgeons and it sounds like they're God until you see them like struggling. <laughs> yeah. Not that, not that I wouldn't have struggled, but it was interesting. Um, but I think that it was really promising. Like it was promising to see that that could be the future. And then bears beginning to focus on the athletic population. How do we put this yeah. in athletes? Yeah. You know, the problem, I'll tell you the main problem for our, our clinical trial, which we're doing is the rehab portion, Yoni, is that you can't, you have to really immobilize them for those first four to six weeks. And when you have an athlete, I, I can't do it. I can't have someone not moving their knee. And, um, and so to me, as soon as that we can do the bare implant or do a, a, a repair, whatever we're going to be doing and allow them to do the same rehab that the ACL reconstructions are doing, weight bearing ASAP, range of motion ASAP, um, then, then I think we start to look at comparable outcomes and seeing where it goes. I think you're probably right. I, I, I think it could be that. I think also we could get better at our game. Like 10 years ago, we didn't have this blood flow restriction concept mm-hmm. where we mm-hmm. fight atrophy and we, we promote hypertrophy. I think something else is going to come along that maybe allows us to immobilize the knee for four to six weeks, let it heal, but we can still gain muscle mass or uh, prevent atrophy. M- maybe that's, that's a game changer. We'll see. We'll see what that future is. Um, if there's one thing that you wish sports PTs knew, it would be what? And we'll close on that. Oh, no. Um, uh, You guys know everything. (laughs) No, Um, we don't know everything. No, you know, it's it's so, again, it's so variable. I I think to me, not not knowing, but just the the communication is what, to me, makes makes a great relationship. And and so not being afraid to reach out. And like we, we talked about, not every surgeon or physician wants to hear from the PT, but make, make that effort and reach out. If you have a concern, you know, raise your hand, call them and say, listen, this is an issue and I'm concerned about this. And if that surgeon opts not to listen to you, then, then that's their, their problem. But I, I do think that it's very important, the communication, because you guys are the experts in, in this rehab. I'm certainly not. And I always, it always makes me, me laugh. And my partner's like, well, I want them to do this and limit this. I'm like, they, they know, like they know more than we do. Right. I can tell you, I put the graft and I did this. And, um, but so we have to, you know, rely on each other's expertise. Well, that's, that's a great summation and, and really refreshing to hear. If we just rely on each other's expertise and utilizing and listening to the patient feedback to understand where they are, I think that hopefully decreases these retail rates increases return to sport. And then if we really all put our heads together, it'll decrease that rising trend of ACL mm-hmm. tears. I think we can that's get a next, little bit that's more That's where we have to go, Yoni. Yeah, we have to prevent yeah. them. Exactly right. Um, Dr. West, what a freaking pleasure. Thank you so much for getting up early with us, although it's probably <laughs> late for you. And, and thanks for being so open to collaborate, to discuss. Um, it's really been eye-opening. Thank you for your time. I can't wait to do another one. Thank you. Thanks so much. It was great being on here, Yoni. Absolutely. Uh